loved you from the first moment I saw you. And you knew it. You tried to escape from it. I had to let you learn to accept it. Are you going to leave me? Yes. I won't stop you. Don't you see, I don't want to leave you. Will you marry me? I want to stay with you. We'll take a house in some small town and I'll keep it for you. Don't laugh, I can. I'll cook, I'll wash your clothes, I'll scrub the floor. And you'll give up architecture. If you give it up, I'll remain with you forever. But I can't bear to stand by and see you moving to some terrible disaster. You can't end any other way. Save yourself from tragedy. Take a meaningless job. We live only for each other. I wish I could tell you it was a temptation. Oh, yes or no? No. You're listening to Sassmouth Dame's podcast. I'm your host, Megan McGurk. After Patricia Neal won the Oscar for Best Actress for her performance in HUD in 1963, whenever she had visitors in the house, they always asked if they could hold it. Pat would hand over the gold statue, and then, with a mischievous smile, she would tell them, go on and shake it. Guests would marvel over the sound it made, like a rattle. She never knew why her Oscar rattled. Maybe it was a loose screw or something inside. One day, Pat had strangers in the house. They were Americans whom she didn't know. They had stopped by for advice about the therapy Pat's son, Theo, had received for brain injuries, which might be of help to their own son. Pat did the rattle trick. Once they had gone and she went to put her Oscar away, Pat noticed that the gold man no longer made any sound. Looking at the bottom, Pat discovered the felt had been torn open at the base of the statue and the contents inside removed. Who knows what they took? It could have been a screw or it could have been a diamond. After that, Pat kept the Oscar on the shelf. At one level, the story about the Academy Award might symbolize Patricia Neal's life. Each time something good happened, it was soon followed by loss. Although Pat experienced tragedy, her life was not tragic. Pat endured great hardship, but over time, she became resilient especially through the love and community of other women. Among Pat's screen standouts is her second picture, The Fountainhead from 1949, directed by King Vidor. It happens to be one of the horniest pictures ever made. As Dominique Francon, Pat embodies a post-war career woman who's an intellect, a tastemaker, and who has a lusty libido and whose greatest fear is losing the run of herself over a man. Trouble ensues when lean and leathery Gary Cooper enters the picture. The Fountainhead showcases Pat's talent, ambition, and provides a glimpse at the love of her life, at the affair she had with co-star Gary Cooper, which began on set and lasted for nearly four years. The first thing that Pat Neal thought about when she was offered the lead role in the screen adaptation of Ayn Rand's novel was how she had read it as a student in Northwestern University. In fact, all the girls she knew in college went to bed with Howard Rourke, Rand's intransigent hero who refuses to compromise his principles against collaboration or a collective vision for his work as an architect. 
In her memoir, Pat describes the book like a one-handed read, a bonkbuster for college girls. Pat's interpretation of the novel is the only interesting thing about it. When Patricia Neal enrolled in Northwestern University to study drama, Charlton Heston was the biggest acting talent on campus. And by the time she left, she was the rising star. After four semesters, Pat dropped out, eager to start walking the boards on Broadway. She worked with a beloved drama teacher in a regional theater in Pennsylvania until her friend Helen Horton asked Pat to move to New York City. Four girls shared a cheap walk-up. They were soon kicked out for rolling kegs down the stairs after raucous parties in the middle of the night, as you do. Pat made the daily rounds of theatrical agents looking for work. She ate lunch at the Automat or Walgreens with other young hopefuls. One day, she helped an actor in a screen test, even though she wasn't being paid for it. She was noticed by an important theatrical agent, Maynard Morris, who had helped Marlon Brando's career. Morris helped Pat get a break in 1945, when she was cast in the voice of the turtle as an understudy. She didn't get to take over for Vicki Cummings, but she did make $150 a week, which was an enormous sum for a 19-year-old. Pat auditioned for the Theater Guild's production of Moon for the Misbegotten. Although Pat didn't get the part, she did impress director Dudley Diggs and the playwright Eugene O'Neill. O'Neill was so smitten, he invited her to read for another part and extended several invitations to Pat without mentioning it to his wife. On tour with Voice of the Turtle in Chicago, Pat was invited to do a screen test for Warner Brothers. A woman in the cast gave Pat smart advice that she followed. The woman said, look, you're pretty enough to get a contract with any studio, but stay on the stage for now. Make a name for yourself, and then they'll really want you. Go out there on your own terms. Back in New York in 1946, Pat received two offers on Broadway in the same day. She could take the female lead in William and Mary, which later became John Loves Mary, a light romantic comedy, or she could star in the new Lillian Hellman drama. After listening to Pat Reed for three minutes in audition, Hellman decided she was the one to play Regina Hubbard in Another Part of the Forest, a prequel to The Little Foxes. Pat thought about the choice and soon decided to play Regina because she felt drawn to drama over comedy. Regina was a character made famous by Tallulah Bankhead on Broadway and Betty Davis and Warner Brothers. It was a plum role. When, while she starred in the backstory for Hellman's ruthless Southern Belle, she became friends with Hellman and, by extension, Dashiell Hammett. From opening night, Pat was hailed as a star. One night, she accepted an invitation from David O. Selznick, who escorted her to dinner with Gregory Peck and his wife. Selznick talked all about his love for his wife, Jennifer Jones, at dinner, but then afterwards he did all he could to get Pat into bed. Pat turned down his invitation to bed and a contract. Pat was a big success in Hellman's play. She received attention from media profiles and invitation to all the right parties and events. During this time, she struck up an affair with Victor Jory, who was 45 and married. Pat won the Tony Award for her performance in 1947. It was the first year of the Antoinette Perry Memorial Awards, 
Pat won for Best Debut. Paramount, Goldwyn, and MGM Studios offered contracts. Warners initially lowballed a figure, which her agent then negotiated into a better, better deal. She signed a standard seven-year contract to start at $17.50 a week, with gradual increases over to $3,000 per week. Pat had a clause which granted her the ability to do a play on Broadway. Like many actresses before her, Pat arrived in the film colony with established acting credentials from Broadway, rather than just being another pretty face and a glossy headshot. Pat stepped off the train in California, wearing a conservative navy suit and a terribly old-fashioned hat her mother had chosen that Pat referred to as a pilgrim bonnet. Really, it looked more like what a woman would have worn stepping off a stagecoach in the 1850s. Shortly after she had arrived, Pat ended an affair with Peter Cookson, another married man, whose wife had left him when she learned about it. Jack Warner had intended to groom Pat Neal as a replacement for Betty Davis. Not long after she joined the studio as a new contract player, Pat was invited to to Warner's private dining room for lunch one day. There were 30 people at the table, including Errol Flynn, but for Pat there was only one person in the room, Gary Cooper. Coop greeted Pat politely, and that was it. He didn't look at her again during lunch, but she couldn't stop thinking about him. Was there a spark between them, or had she imagined it? Pat couldn't stop staring at his ravishingly handsome face, and it sent shivers up her spine. A few days later, she was walking on the lot in Warners, when a man on a bicycle introduced himself. He was the director, King Vidor, a stalwart who had been behind the camera since 1913. Yet somehow he still had something of the face of a cherub. He invited Pat to test for the part of Dominique in the studio's adaptation of The Fountainhead. Gary Cooper was Anne Rand's choice. She said, I would rather the part underplayed than overdone by some phony-looking ham. Rand considered Cooper the exact physical type to play the architect. For the part of Dominique, Rand had felt Garbo would have been ideal as if that was going to happen. Years later, King Vidor admitted that he hadn't thought Coop was the best fit to play Rourke. Originally, he had wanted Humphrey Bogart or James Cagney. Vidor felt the part or the picture might be an ideal um, project for Bogart and Bacall. Looking back, he realized that the other two leading men would have been all wrong. Bogey or Cagney would have been too loud. They would have played it heavy-handed, shouted and ordered people about like a tough guy. Gary Cooper approached the role at a lower register. He didn't shout. He was soft-spoken and on the quiet side on the big screen. And really, when you think about it, doesn't that spell conviction? Howard Rourke was convinced he was right. He didn't have to bother raising his voice. It didn't matter if other people disagreed with him. Rourke was not the type to be interested in an opposing view. When Pat walked into Vidor's office that day in 1948, Gary was sitting in a leather club chair with a script in his lap. They made small talk. Vidor explained that Pat still had to make two tests over two days before she officially had the part. She rang George Stanoff for acting advice. He was a coach. 
She thought of her character Dominique as frigid and neurotic, and she wasn't sure if she had the right approach. After a scene in rehearsal, Pat would ask Stanoff how she was. It was great, he replied. Do it exactly like that, no other way. Pat objected that she didn't know what she had done and doubted if she could repeat it the same way a second time. She tried again and invited feedback. Stanoff said, do it just that way. The lesson that Pat learned from this was that acting wasn't about a set of rules or a formula. He was teaching her to respond intuitively and to trust her instincts in the moment. Pat did the tests in the studio with a contract player standing in for Gary. For one test, Cooper was there and watched. The verdict on the test was she was great in one and had bombed the other, but they didn't tell Pat which one. She wondered about the test where Gary had watched. Was that the good one or the stinker? The studio announced that Pat would play Dominique. This was after Jack Warner had purchased the rights and promised Barbara Stanwyck that she would play Dominique in the big screen version. Stanwyck was livid at the double cross and fired off a scalding telegram to Warner. Pat was determined to give an outstanding performance. She rehearsed. She also wanted to look great on camera. Instead of just dieting, she began to starve. Six weeks before production, she drastically reduced her calories. She wanted to reach a target weight of 120 pounds. She increased her exercise regimen. She took daily massages. She wanted to look just right in Milo Anderson's wardrobe. Shooting began on a location at a quarry near Fresno. Pat and Coop rode in King Vidor's chauffeured car. They stayed in the same inn, Pat one floor above Coop. The first scene they shot was the one where Pat first sees Howard Rourke drilling into a slab of the quarry. She was already in love with him. She was drawn to Gary Cooper like no other man she had known. She was 22 years old. Gary was 47. Pat looked for any excuse to ring his room. When did they start the next day? What scene were they shooting? She would draw out their phone conversations any way she could. Coop was polite. She could hear him smiling on the telephone. He was wise to her flirtation. For the scene set in the quarry, Pat learned to ride a horse. Uncomfortable in the saddle, Pat later said she could go her whole life without ever being near a horse again and that'd be fine. You would never guess she was nervous watching her gallop on the hunt for Howard Rourke. When they finished the location shoot in the car on the way back, Coop put his hand on top of hers, and they sat that way until they arrived at the studio. Neither of them mentioned what was brewing between them. They seemed to share an understanding that the sexual chemistry building before the camera must not be disturbed. Rather than risk the on-screen chemistry, they deferred their pleasure until the end of the picture. In the meantime, they enjoyed working together. In the morning, Gary went to the makeup department and watched Patricia get her hair done by Gertrude Wheeler. He stood and watched as Gertrude washed Pat's hair, dried it, and curled it. He didn't say anything, he just watched. Gertrude figured out what was going on but never said a word. No one else in the studio did either. Everyone tiptoed around the lust that brewed between the two stars. Coop abandoned his usual practice of napping in his dressing room between scenes. Instead, he rehearsed with Pat. 
Every day they ate lunch together, but they never saw each other in the evening after work. One day, Pat heard Mrs. Cooper was visiting the set and her heart sank. When she was introduced to Gary's mother, she recovered. Pat enjoyed hearing stories about Gary as a boy and his adventures on the family's Seven Bar Nine Ranch in Last Chance Gulch, Montana. One day, the other Mrs. Cooper did pay a visit. Pat did all the things a jealous woman does. At the time, Pat's view of marriage vows was fairly typical for a young woman whose heart was set on an older married man. If a wife couldn't hold her man, that was her problem. Pat thought she had the advantage because she was younger than Rocky Cooper. She looked at Coop's wife like an unwelcome interloper, the one who ruined what she had. But Pat underestimated Rocky Cooper, as she would soon find out. Rocky was as shrewd as a Hollywood executive and one of the most elegant women in town. Rocky had married Coop in 1933 and wasn't about to hand him over to a little starlet. Ayn Rand adapted her script from the best-selling novel. She was often on the set to supervise. Like her hero, Howard Rourke, Rand was on guard for anyone altering her creation. She had warned that she felt justified in following the logic of her hero and would blow up the studio if they strayed from the script as written. The author had a clause in her contract that if any changes were about to be made, she had to be summoned to the set for approval. King Veter liked this clause because it gave him an easy way to shut down any objections from actors on the set. Veter said it was the often the case where an actor would complain that he couldn't read the line as written and wanted to change it. Once Gary did that on set, and Veter said, well, we'll have to call Miss Rand. How long will that take, Coop replied. Oh, at least an hour, Vidor said. Cooper changed his mind. Forget it. It'll take too long. I'll say it as written. Vidor and Cooper had established a rapport from when they worked together in Goldwyn studio in 1935 for the wedding night with Anna Sten. Vidor recalled that he was alarmed when he first worked with Gary Cooper. On set, it seemed like Cooper did nothing more than mumble his lines. He didn't seem to do much in front of the camera. Vidor made notes that he would have to tell Cooper to enunciate and work on his delivery. But later, when it came to viewing the rushes, Vidor watched Cooper give a warm performance full of charisma. Vidor realized Coop was perfectly in tune with the medium. Like a true star, Gary Cooper knew the technical aspects of acting for the screen. Coop didn't have to project himself toward the camera or the microphone. They were sensitive instruments, which caught what the average eye and ear could not. Pat needed more than Vidor was willing to give in terms of direction. It was only her second picture. On set with seasoned film actors who didn't have to pause before they were ready, Pat became flustered because she wasn't sure if what she was doing was good or right. She had, if she had trouble with a scene, Vidor would not say much more than, come on, baby, give it all you've got. Pat later felt it was just a result of his long tenure in pictures that he didn't get involved in coaching a performance. She relied more on rehearsals with Gary to find her way into a scene. Unlike every other character on screen, men who discourse in long-winded oratory, Dominique's character relies more on action than speech. 
In the novel, Dominique is a two-dimensional masochist, as Ayn Rand intended, but on screen, Patricia Neal makes her into a flesh-and-blood woman who wants to hold on to her independence above everything else. Dominique prizes her own autonomy so much that she ditches the man she loves and marries a man she doesn't just so she can stay in control. This plot isn't exactly new in woman's pictures or in fiction, but Pat Neal brings an intelligence to Dominique's struggle. The last thing she wants to do is throw her life away for a man. For a woman with brains and ambition, love is dangerous, whether it's 1949 or the present day. Dominique has made a name for herself as an influential newspaper columnist. She doesn't write the society page. She writes a column on matters of social importance. Men value her critical acumen. She writes opinions that can make or break a career. She's smart, worldly, elegant. And like many heroines before her, she knows that she could risk losing everything should she allow herself to fall in love. But Dominique also has a healthy libido. Pets builds the character's struggle between logic and desire. Pat plays Dominique as bored, headstrong, and horny. She's utterly glorious. Patricia Neal's cheekbones are like a statue carved by Bernini, as smooth as sculpted marble. Dyed blonde, Pat's glossy hair gives Elizabeth Scott a run for her money. For her first scene in the film, Pat is a star. She drops a statue of a male nude out of the window of her top floor apartment like it were a paper airplane. Patricia plays Dominique with force and conviction. What woman doesn't want to perch above the street and smash bad art and let it fall where it may, even on the head of some unsuspecting passerby? Raymond Massey, who plays Gal Wynand, her newspaper editor and later husband, arrives and talks at her. Nothing he has to say is more interesting than the dressing gown Pat wears from Milo Anderson. Done in lustrous black silk, the gown mirrors the architectural theme of the picture. The pleats and draped folds of Milo Anderson's gown references the fluted grooves and Doric columns that date back to the classical era in Greek architecture. The lines are straight and are embellished with the valance across the back. Surrounded by wealth and taste, Dominique is restless and dissatisfied, perhaps because she's engaged to a man she doesn't love, Peter Keating, played by Kent Smith. Kent Smith, by the way, does the most with a two-dimensional character. I like him. He grows on me more and more. I think of how humiliating it must have been for him to play the scene where he begs Gary Cooper to design the housing project he's landed but is incapable of doing because he's a second-hander. Anyway, Dominique is surrounded by men who aren't half as smart as she is. Then one day she's out looking over the quarry her father owns and spots a standout. While men grunt working in a pile of rocks, she stands above them, cool, remote, in immaculate white and black, looking down. Among the grunts, she spies a diamond in the rough. Under a blazing sun, caked in dirt and sweat, she spots a man wearing a fedora. He's leaning into his work, drilling a hole in a slab of rock. His skin is leathered from the sun. Gary Cooper is long and lean. 
Coop's forearm, brown and laced with veins, looks as hard as the pillars of granite that line the quarry. Vitor draws the scene out. The camera cuts back and forth between Dominique looking and Howard Rourke looking back. It's pure cinema. Nothing is said, and yet they tell us everything by looking at one another. Rourke stops his work, adjusts his hat, and stares at the woman standing above. Sometimes, when a backstage love affair ignites during production, it doesn't really appear on screen, because the actors do everything in their power to hide it, especially when one or both of them are married to other people. Pat and Coop don't seem to be acting, though, when they take the full measure of each other. They react to one another with hungry eyes. Nearly 20 years have passed since the scene in Morocco where Coop looked at Marlena Dietrich and told her with his eyes what she had to look forward to later. He does the same thing here with Pat, only wizened, brown as leather, he looks more dangerous, wolfish, in his stare. It's only a matter of time before he gives her the business. On the top of the quarry ledge, Pat's white silk scarf billows out behind her like she's an aviator flying through the clouds. The scarf isn't being blown about by plain wind, though, but by the combined force of their lust that meets and creates a separate air front altogether. After their first encounter, Dominique's restlessness launches into overdrive, spurred on by her desire for the man in the quarry. In a shot that prefigures Douglas Sirk's obsession with women brooding at a dressing table, Dominique sits at an antique dressing table and recalls the image of the tall, gaunt man drilling a hole into rock. She paces her bedroom with a furrowed brow. Pat plays the scene so we can hear her thoughts. How can she get that man in her bedroom? Across her face, she tells us when she has the answer. In front of the window, she suddenly changes her expression, which tells the viewer she's figured it out. Pat strides across the room to the fireplace, selects a poker, and proceeds to clobber the hearthstone. Cinema has shown us many expressions of sexually frustrated women, but nothing really beats Pat Neal slamming a poker into marble to summon a man into her boudoir. Coop arrives and is exceedingly polite. Yes, Miss Francom. No, Miss Francom. Coop's frequent use of her name in that formal way sets up Dominique's dominance in the encounter. He plays at submission. He knows what she's after. With two wax on a chisel, he efficiently shatters the stone where before she had merely landed a few divots in the marble surface. He also needles Dominique by insulting the design of the fireplace and of the house. Coop puts his hat over one of the decorative Vestal Virgins in front of the hearth in a gesture that's meant to spare his eyes from an aesthetic horror more than a means of making himself comfortable. She waves off his criticism. He's just a grunt. What does he know about the grand house her father built? He'll have a new stone ordered for her, he says. Later, when she opens her bedroom door to admit a tall drink of man water, it turns out to be a short round man there to set the new stone. Dominique is livid. How dare he? Rourke was supposed to lay more than a hearthstone. 
Furious, she races on horseback to upbraid him at the quarry. He's gone, left the job, she's told. Pat gallops up behind him on a gravel path as he walks out of town. Against the sun, in his beige button-down shirt and khakis, Gary Cooper looks like a tall, bleached pine tree. Pat dispenses with pleasantries. Why didn't he set the stone, she demands. Coop falls into the Miss Francon routine. Dominique is in a frenzy and whips him across the face. He cups his hand over it as if it really hurt. Dominique's lash stains his cheek with blood. Later that evening, we come to Notorious, scene 66. Rourke dispenses with a polite deference. No more Miss Francon. He walks in her bedroom without a word. Dominique pounds her fists on his chest so forcefully you can hear the blows land. They kiss. Pat's glossy hair is tousled as she pulls away. The black lace penoir set she wears swings around as she attempts to run away. In the novel, it's a clumsy rape scene, but in the picture, it seems more like she fights against her desire for him than against necessarily having sex with Gary Cooper. The Breen office memo was adamant. Scene 66 is completely unacceptable. As presently written, this scene seems to suggest a sex affair. Moreover, this sex affair has about it a flavor of a not-too-strenuously-resisted rape. The censor said, The censors also warned against passionate, prolonged, open-mouth kissing in the scene. And they also said Pat showed too much cleavage. The closing scene of The Fountainhead endorses Dominique's passion for Rourke. The scene also rescues the picture from the heavy-handed speeches we had listened to, delivered by men throughout the picture. We end with what Dominique wants. The primacy of her desire is what sticks with the viewer long after it's over. As she ascends the tallest building in the world alone in a service elevator, we see the stages of sexual arousal, of her triumph. She's launched into the clouds, her hair blowing, mouth open, panting, her eyes rolled back in her head. She's exhilarated by her conquest about the man who waits for her on top. As she climbs the building, she surveys the Manhattan skyline like it's her domain. The shot reminded me of other pictures, such as the number in King of New York and the opening title sequence of Girls About Town, where women are superimposed on skyscrapers. And also Babyface, where the progress of Stanwyck's character is measured floor by floor on a high-rise building in New York. New York is a woman's town. William McGann and his special effects crew took weeks to produce the backdrop for the climb in the service elevator shot. Dominique has to look as if she were traveling 1,400 feet up in the air with constantly changing backgrounds. At one point, she looks down and sees the top of the Empire State Building and other landmarks of the city. It's a thrilling sequence that is matched by Pat Neal's performance. King Vidor had studied the work of Frank Lloyd Wright, who was the inspiration for Howard Rourke's designs. Warners had invited Wright to design buildings for the picture, but the famed architect set his fees at $250,000, which far exceeded what the studio was willing to pay. 
Wright also noted that Rand's views were an abomination of his work. As an alternative, Vidor had meetings with cinematographer James Burks, along with the head of Warner's art department, Edward Carrera. An article in the June 1949 magazine, American Cinematographer on Burks, noted that in years past, the studio would have boasted about how much money they spent on set design, but that was no longer the case in Hollywood. The article's subtext is the change in revenue after the Paramount ruling broke up the studio monopoly on theater chains and ticket sales, and also sales that were threatened by competition from television. Now they were boasting about how little they spent on set design. The Fountainhead was an achievement in scale, both in design and economy. In the scenes filmed at the quarry in Fresno, crew members painted dark shadows on slabs of granite for dramatic effect. As the sun moved across the sky, the crews washed off the paint and reapplied it to match the shadows. Sets were kept simple, with clean lines. Carrera had sets painted brighter white in the foreground and darker in the recesses to enhance a plane-upon-plane effect. Burks floored the sets, or sorry, flooded the sets with light for sharp contrasts and shadow lines. Large photo murals were used for the skyline views of New York City. In Warner's during the wrap party, the room shrank around the stars. With the picture in the can, they were free to take the affair to the next level. Rocky was in New York. Coop asked if he could drive Pat home. No, she said. She had her car, but he could follow. When they reached the Fox Hills duplex she rented from Jean Valentino, Rudy's first wife, Pat led Gary into the bedroom. In real life, Coop was unlike his screen persona. He was not a man of few words, but was actually talkative and a great conversationalist. Pat recalled the rhythm of their time together. Coop would drive over to her place, often with a bottle of wine, a bag of groceries, or a present under his arm. He would make shrimp cocktail or guacamole. They would sit in the garden and talk or listen to records before they retired to the bedroom. Or they might sneak into downtown L.A. for Mexican food. Pat noted, we were not building a life together. We were seizing moments. Initially content with her backstreet part in Coop's life, Pat didn't pressure him about the future. Gary was generous. The first gift he gave Pat was a brooch of a woman in full skirts and a bonnet done in sapphires and rubies. It was supposed to be a joke about her southern roots, and the figure was of a woman from the Civil War era. He brought her a fur rug from some animal he'd shot on safari. Cooper bought a red and white polka dot dress, a sundress, which didn't fit Pat, so she waited to model it for him until she could have it taken in. After Pat returned from shooting The Hasty Heart in England with Ronald Reagan, Cooper gave her a brand new Cadillac. One night during the early part of their affair, there was a horrible car crash outside Pat's bungalow. One of the witnesses asked to use Pat's phone. She lied, said she didn't have one. All she could think was about protecting Gary, who was sound asleep in her bed. It would be a big scandal if the press got a hold of the story, and Pat would not let it harm his career. She told the young man to run down to a filling station and kick in the glass to get to a phone. The guy did, but he also sliced open his leg in the process. 
In the middle of the accident scene, the next moment, Gary was striding about in Pat's robe. Nobody noticed him. It shocked her for a bit afterwards to think that she put two lives in jeopardy just to protect Gary. For the Fountainhead premiere, Pat was escorted by Kirk Douglas. While the picture screened, Pat sensed the audience's disappointment. She had been swept up with the magic of onset production and had high hopes. They all did. In the lobby, after the credits rolled, people avoid looking at Pat, except for Virginia Mayo, who bounded up to Pat and said, My, weren't you bad? Coop was always a favorite with reporters and critics, and they were reluctant to shift the blame to him. The Fountainhead wasn't a flop, it just wasn't the big hit everyone had expected. Jack Warner had built up Pat with so much fanfare for her second picture, calling her the best thing since Garbo. Now Warner had egg on his face, and she was to blame. Pat's own opinion of the picture soured over the years. She had nothing good to say about it, except that it put her next to Cooper. While the affair was still in its early stages, Pat had continued to see Kirk Douglas. What was she supposed to do, sit by the phone? Waiting around for a married man can be a strain. Plus, she had studio obligations to attend social events. She kept things with really platonic with Kirk Douglas, but one night he brought her home after a date and came in for a drink. He was putting the moves on. Pat let him kiss her. Then she pushed him away before things went further. Once he left, Gary was at the door. He saw what happened. He had been watching through the window. Secretly pleased he was jealous, Pat smiled. Gary slapped Pat hard across the face. He bloodied her nose. Pat was furious. She shouted, you don't do that to me. Cooper apologized. He never raised a hand to her again. In the spring of 1949, Coop's publicist, Harvey Orkin, invited Pat and her mother to join a group traveling to Aspen, Colorado, to hear a speech by Albert Schweitzer. While they were there for the lecture, they would also get to visit Gary's new home. Harvey didn't know about the affair. Curiosity got the best of Pat. She couldn't resist being under the same roof as the man she loved and getting a look at the way he lived. When they arrived, Cooper was so clumsy and bumbling that Rocky noticed. After the guests left, Rocky asked Gary if he was having an affair with Pat. He admitted he was. Then Rocky asked if he loved her. He said yes. Rocky was upset, as one can imagine. She wasn't blind to the fact that Gary had a long history of becoming romantically involved with his co-stars. This time it was serious. It was different. Rocky acted out. She told their 11-year-old daughter, Maria, who was distraught at the idea of losing her father. Maria took to sleepwalking. One night after their affair was no longer a secret, Rocky and Gary found Maria standing next to the swimming pool in her nightgown. Coop told Pat that Rocky referred to her as his southern cow who eats cornbread and black-eyed peas. Rocky let it be known among the film colony society that Pat was a homewrecker, and she got the cold shoulder as a result. One night at a party at the Warners, Ann Warner set Pat directly across the table from Rocky, 
and Rocky threw vicious looks at her all night. In 1950, they made a second picture together, Bright Leaf, directed by Michael Curtiz. Pat had lobbied for the part played by Lauren Bacall. She was disappointed when she learned that Gary's passion did not extend to fighting for her in the studio. He could have used his clout to get help her get what she wanted, but he didn't. The experience taught Pat that Gary avoided conflict at all costs. He was not a fighter. It would be a sign that spelled the end of their relationship. Gary surprised Pat with a trip to Cuba, and they stayed with his dear friend Ernest, Ernest Hemingway, apparently to get the author's blessing on the relationship. Pat flew back to Hollywood, and Gary went on to New York, where he did Come Back Little Sheba for a radio broadcast. The next day, without thinking, Pat sent a telegram to congratulate Gary on his performance. She received a response which read, I have had just about enough of you. Stop now or you will be sorry. It was from Rocky. During production of Operation Pacific, the last picture Pat made under contract with Warners, starring John Wayne, Pat missed her period. She was two months late. At first, she bonded with Gary about the news, but the initial joy they felt as expecting parents was not to be. It was October 1950. Earlier in the same year, Ingrid Bergman's career had ended abruptly after news leaked that she was having an affair with her director, Roberto Rossellini, and expecting a child when she was already married to another man. Pat knew that it would ruin them both, so she let Gary arrange an abortion. The procedure was an ordeal, and it was the biggest regret of Pat's life. She loved Gary Cooper madly and had wanted their child. She mourned the loss for decades. Gary told Rocky, Pat recalled, If I had been older and wiser, I would have realized that Gary had no reason to tell Rocky about the abortion unless he was going to stay with her. He was not going to pick up my option." Months later, at the close of 1950, Warners dropped their option on Pat. In less than three years, she went from being the next Betty Davis to being a washout. Pat later signed a three-picture deal with 20th Century Fox. Although the Coopers had officially separated, Gary had moved into the Bel Air Hotel rather than Pat's duplex. Pat was socially frozen out amongst the established A-listers. Betsy Drake, an old friend, rescinded a dinner invitation because her husband, Cary Grant, said he didn't want to risk getting involved in the Cooper split. At a party at David Selznick and Jennifer Jones's house, none of the women spoke to Pat except Annabella, Ty Powers' ex-wife and also an old friend. One night, Pat and Gary went to a party hosted by top agent Charles Feldman. Rocky Cooper arrived on the arm of Peter Lawford. She looked incredible. Every man had his eye on Rocky, including her husband, Gary. By December 1951, Cooper's health was in decline. He had had a hernia operation in August, and now in the last month of the year, he was in New York for surgery on his ulcers. His weight and appetite had dropped. Pat rang his mother to ask if she should join him there. Mrs. Cooper gave out to Pat, telling her Gary was sick because of her. Guilty and hurt, Pat rang Gary and ended the affair. She was distraught at the end of her romance and looked for a distraction. She invited a few friends over for drinks for Christmas. 
When her guests left, Pat found a gift wrap box at the door. Inside was a mink coat from Gary. Pat misread the signal, or the significance of the present, and rang Gary in Idaho. He was cold to her on the phone. One of her friends saw the mink and thought, "Uh uh-oh, this is the kiss-off. The mink was a parting gift. Finally, Pat knew the affair was over, and she lost herself to grief. She cried for days. She couldn't eat or sleep. Her weight dropped to 111 pounds. On a trip to visit her mother and sister in Atlanta, she was such a wreck that her sister brought in her family physician. Pat was having a nervous breakdown. The doctor gave Pat a shot so she could get some rest for the first time in in months. Pat slept for more than 24 hours. Then, over a period of 12 weeks, she just talked to the doctor, who listened patiently. In March, Pat felt sufficiently well enough to do MGM's The Washington Story with Van Johnson. Pat had moved into a new apartment back in Hollywood and gave the old lease to Lex Barker. Later, she learned that Rocky had contacted Lex and asked to see the apartment. She wanted to see the love nest that Gary had kept with Pat. Around this time, Pat met, Pat met a society guy, Louis William Douglas, who was known as Peter. His father was an American ambassador to England. Peter was rich and uncomplicated, a perfect rebound. One night, they were at a party and ran into Gary. Pat was shocked by his appearance. Gary was a man who was famous for being perfectly groomed and stylish. But now at this party, he looked like he'd been on a bender for days. He was unshaven. His clothes were dirty and rumpled. He hadn't dealt well with the breakup either. They had a few minutes alone. How are you, baby? Gary asked. He was seeing other women still living at the Bel Air Hotel. Pat decided she had had an end with her life in Hollywood. She needed a fresh start. There was nothing for her there now. Gary went back to Rocky in 1953. Pat's return to the stage in New York and she starred in a revival of Lillian Hellman's The Children's Hour. It was at a party in Hellman's that she met the man she would spend 30 years with. Pat saw Gary twice before he died. In 1955, she saw him window shopping on Fifth Avenue. She felt glad she was wearing a Christian Dior at the time and was looking so well. They went across the street to the St. Regis Hotel for tea. She told him that he broke her heart. Gary explained what she already knew, that he could not have hurt Maria for the world. Pat knew if it had just been Rocky, she could have been, you know, happy with him and gotten married. But he would never have broken up his daughter's home. They sat and stared at each other. The last time she saw Gary Cooper was in England in 1959. She was filming a picture in Elstree Studio when she learned Gary was shooting The Wreck of the Mary Deer on another set. They met and held hands as they talked. Gary wasn't well. When he died in May 1961, only 60 years old, Pat went into a Catholic church and said a prayer. She thought she would never have to worry about seeing a man of a certain tall, lanky physique and wonder if it were him. She wouldn't have to wonder about him or think of his elegance and beauty, especially his hands. In 1974, Pat met with Maria Cooper, now grown. Pat confided in Gary's adult daughter about the abortion and the affair. They shared stories about him. 
Maria gave Pat Rocky's address and asked her to write. In time, she did. Pat apologized to Rocky, who forgave her. Patricia Neal had known tragedy. Losing Gary Cooper was only the first of many. She nearly lost her son Theo when he was struck by a taxi as pram when he was only a few months old and took years before he thrived. She lost her eldest child, Olivia, to measles. Pat suffered three strokes in 1966. Newspapers had printed her obituary. Pat didn't die, obviously, but her recovery took years. Then, in 1983, after 30 years of marriage to a man who could be the textbook definition of withholding as well as controlling, she was gaslighted and then cast aside for a younger woman. Patricia fell apart over the divorce. It might have been the blow that finished her off after many years of being resilient. Luckily, she found relief with the help of Maria and Rocky, who recommended a retreat the Abbey of Regina Laudis in Connecticut. The abbess was Dolores Hart, a former film star who had done pictures with Elvis Presley. The abbess taught Pat to let go of her bitterness and what she had lost and look at the love that remained. Pat found solace in getting to know Gary's wife and daughter. Twenty years after Gary Cooper died, Patricia was able to share him again and with the women in his family who loved him best. It was love that gave her the strength to emerge from the wreckage of her marriage to Rual Dahl. The petty jealousy and competition with Rocky and Pat were gone, as was the guilt she felt about what the affair had done to Maria. Only the good memories of her passion and true love survived. It was a gift of peace that was instrumental in getting on with her life. In some way, a great love never dies. Thanks to the Cooper women and a community of nuns, Pat Neal rose above Dahl's many cruelties. The following books helped me to write the episode, As I Am by Patricia Neal, published in 1988. Patricia Neal, An Unquiet Life by Stephen Michael Shearer, published in 2006. The Last Hero, a biography of Gary Cooper by Larry Swindell, published in 1980. Gary Cooper, American Hero by Jeffrey Myers, published in 1998 and updated in 2001. A Tree is a Tree by King Vidor, published in 1953. On Filmmaking by King Vidor, published in 1972. Conversations with the Great Movie Makers of Hollywood's Golden Age at the American Film Institute by George Stevens Jr., published in 2006. The Men Who Made the Movies by Richard Schickel and Ivan D., published in 1975. I'll be back in January with Mannequins, a new play in a three-part series, this time set in a Hollywood dress shop in 1934. If you're enjoying the podcast, why not leave a nice review on social media or on iTunes? Thanks for listening.